So we invite little ones to head over to Children's Chapel with Justina. Follow Justina right over here. Doors over there. Off you go. In the meantime, let's pray. Lord God, thank you for imagining us into being. Thank you for loving us as we are. Please be seated. During World War II, the French surrealist poet Robert Desnos was arrested for his work in the French resistance and sent to Auschwitz. The writer Susan Griffin tells this story about him based on an account from her friend Odette, a Holocaust survivor who was there. She writes, Along with many others who crowd the bed of a large truck, Odette tells me, Robert Desnos is being taken away from the barracks of the concentration camp where he has been held a prisoner. Leaving the barracks, the mood is somber. Everyone knows the truck is headed for the gas chambers. And when the truck arrives, no one can speak at all. Even the guards fall silent. But this silence is soon interrupted by an energetic man who jumps into the line and grabs one of the condemned. Improbable as it is, Odette explains, Desnos reads the man's palm. Oh, he says, I see you have a very long lifeline. And you are going to have three children. He is exuberant, and his excitement is contagious. First one man, then another, offers up his hand, and the prediction follows for longevity, more children, abundant joy. As Desnos reads more poems, not only does the mood of the prisoners change, but that of the guards, too. They are so disoriented by this sudden change of mood among those they are about to kill that they are unable to go through with the executions. So all the men, along with Desnos, are packed back onto the truck and taken back to the barracks. Desnos has saved his own life and the lives of others by using his imagination. Now, when I read this story by Susan Griffin, I wondered, did Desnos know he would be successful? And I thought, no, this is a member of the resistance, and this was his last act of resistance, and it worked. Susan Griffin's essay appears in the book, The Impossible Will Take a Little While, A Citizen's Guide to Hope in a Time of Fear. She was writing about the power of imagination in addressing the horror of the early 2000s when we were still standing in the rubble of 9-11 and the war in Iraq that followed. 
She wrote that harnessing the power of imagination required walking a fine line between fantasy and denial on the one hand and a paralyzing realism on the other. She writes, every important social movement reconfigures the world in imagination. What was obscure comes forward. Lies are revealed. Memories shaken. New delineations drawn over the old maps. It is from this new way of seeing the present that hope for the future emerges. Now, if this is true of social movements, it is especially true of the gospel. It resonates throughout the scriptures and the religious practices and beliefs that spring from them because these are immensely powerful acts of imagination, God's imagination and ours. And they do reconfigure the world with the resulting acts of resistance and their absurd hope. Consider this astounding imagery from one of the last chapters in the book of Isaiah, which we heard today. For I am about to create a new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and delight in my people. No more shall the sound of weeping be heard in it or the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant that lives but a few days or an old person who does not live out a lifetime. Now this sounds to me a bit like the performative work of Robert Desnos reading palms on the way to the gas chamber. Now, the audience for this prophecy from Isaiah is rebuilding Jerusalem and the temple after years of exile in Babylon, and they are struggling mightily over their own disillusionment as political and religious practice is not going as it should. They are free of one oppression, but what follows is not pretty either. So the author of Isaiah imagines what it will be like when God's vision for the creation is fully realized. It sounds a lot like Eden before the fall, but it reconfigures the present, and that helps everyone to keep building their temple. Now Luke's gospel is about that same temple, but for Luke's audience, It is again in rubble, having been destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. Luke's faith communities are living amidst a new diaspora and dislocation from this holy city and this holy place of worship. And so he offers a story from Jesus' ministry in which Jesus describes a set of horrific circumstances that are very like the ones they are living in. And Jesus explains what the disciple is to do at times like these, while waiting for the old world to be replaced with something new. And like that story about Robert Desnos, it has a kind of surreal ring to it, because Jesus inserts an absurd hope in this very dismal picture. 
When you are dragged before judges and inquisitors, he says, this will be your opportunity to witness to God's saving word. Don't even plan a defense, for God will tell you what to say. And while you will be arrested and tortured and put to death, while you will be betrayed by family members, not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your souls, he tells them. I see an eternal life in your future, Jesus might as well be saying. This is how disciples of Jesus, then and now, are to live in this meantime between Jesus' resurrection and the completion of God's vision. And it requires radical imagination fueled by the grace of God, the kind of imagination that pushes back against forces that oppress and destroy and exploit and defy the vision of God. Now, we may be several thousand years removed from Israel returning from exile or first century Jesus followers in diaspora, but there is a desire that we share as people of God. This deep longing for a new heavens and a new earth. What we call the kingdom of God. This is different from wishing for the destruction of the world so that some heaven may follow or some rapture may take its place. It is a desire, rather, for the transformation and repair of the world, what our Jewish sisters and brothers call tikkun olam. I mean, don't you find yourself wishing for the world to be the way God made it to be? Cleaner, brighter, kinder, more peaceful, more loving, a world where there is no suffering or injustice? Because I know I do every time I turn on the radio or listen to the news. And we also can relate to the biblical tendency to read the tea leaves of disaster because no one is removed from catastrophes and losses that alter their own heavens and earth entirely. It can be as personal as losing a loved one suddenly, or having a marriage fail, or sending a family member to treatment. Take one step back, and there is no end to the earthquakes and floods and wildfires, to violence and dislocation. If these are signs of something, they point everywhere and nowhere, and they always have. And yet, like our biblical counterparts, we have a tendency to see God's hand in them. Is God punishing us? Is God laughing at us or jerking us around? Is God coming back to get us? With those signs come a nagging worry about the time. Is it too soon to expect joyous transformative change? Is it too late? What time is it actually? Now, for the last two years, the doomsday clock, a thought experiment of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, has been set to two minutes before midnight. Their symbolic time for world cataclysm. And that's because of two great global threats that have been made worse in recent years, the use of nuclear weapons and climate change. Two minutes to midnight 
is as close to the symbolic end of the world that the iconic clock has been at since 1953 at the height of the Cold War. The atomic scientists call the time we are living in right now the new abnormal. The new abnormal describes a moment in which fact is becoming indistinguishable from fiction, undermining our very abilities to develop and apply solutions to the big problems of our time, they wrote in their 2019 report. The new abnormal risks emboldening autocrats and lulling citizens around the world into a dangerous sense of enemy and political paralysis. In the face of the new abnormal, what do we disciples of Jesus offer to a world at two minutes to doomsday? We offer courageous acts of imagination that reconfigure the world. Like the idea that the cross and its invitation to die to old ways and to be raised into something new might be our best symbol for life. We offer reversals of the established order like loving your enemies, blessing those who hate you, praying for those who persecute you. We offer harebrained schemes so crazy they just might work, like insisting that everyone deserves a long lifeline because they get health care or an education or a home to live in, whether we like them or not. If you read between the lines of today's gospel, Jesus tells us what this requires of us. We must be ready to tell the truth. That way, when someone hauls us in and asks us for the reason for the hope that we have, or what gives us the right to obstruct injustice with our votes or our bodies, we can blame Jesus. It's his heaven and his earth. We're just the help. To be able to tell that kind of truth, we have to actually trust Jesus. Now, that might sound kind of trite, But I rely on this every day because the thought that I can do any of this on my own is absolutely overwhelming and terrifying. Sometimes I need to to lean on you, the faith of the people around me. Sometimes I just have to receive what I haven't earned, the grace that repairs the world. And that helps me trust that I'll have the words to say when needed, or at least the wisdom to know when to shut up. To be able to trust Jesus, we have to live as though. We have to live as though the kingdom has come, and a new heavens and a new earth are unfolding. We have to live as though Jesus' life is stronger than death. We have to live as though we believe it. And it's okay if we have to pretend sometimes. Because we can't always get our heads around the idea of God, even though our hearts are pretty good at recognizing the love of God. And it's much better to live like you believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus, even if you can't explain what that means, than to say you believe in Jesus and live like you don't. That's why... To live as though 
we're required to have a great imagination and a taste for the absurd is part of this plan. And that brings us full circle, which God so often does. And full circles don't really have endings, but they do have deepenings. They do have turnings that shift all the broken pieces into a new design, a new life with God just when it looks like we're being asked to die. Because our palms betray a long lifeline, an eternal lifeline, one that originates in the very hand of God. Amen.